Are you an agent struggling to understand real estate economics? Would you benefit from learning how top agents structure their businesses? Then you've come to the right place. And welcome to another edition of the Nerdy Agent Podcast, where we teach you the basic economic and business principles you need to thrive in today's real estate market. I'm your host, Luke Pedersen, with my brothers and fellow nerds, Josh and AJ. What's going on, guys? Do you think when we point, I mean, on YouTube, it's cool, but when we point and we pause, do you think the listeners on Spotify and Apple are like, what is going on? No, you know what? So I realize they hear the point. No, no. The pause isn't weird to other people. Because I was doing this, I was shooting a video with Haley last week, and I would pause, and then I would keep talking, and it was a normal pause but to me it felt like i was waiting like five seconds because we all talk so fast and we never pause that any sort of pause to us feels like an eternity i think to other people that that was just normal do you think usually when i listen to podcasts i listen at like 1.25 times speed do you think people listen to our podcast at like 0.75 i do one and a half (laughs) but do they slow us down to like actually be able to they probably should they probably should get into the would you rather of the week which josh is pretty happy we're shooting two podcasts this week he did two would you rathers and they both are Pretty good. This one's a little bit confusing to me, but <laughs> would you rather have a formal dining room big enough, big enough to have your entire family over for Thanksgiving? So this is a table in your dining room that's big enough for twenty people. It's always I that big. Tw- How big is this family? Like, it family? has to be in order. To, it, it's that big. It's no, big but like a big table people. that you could have 12, 14 people around. But yeah. it's always that big. Or an informal dining room that isn't large enough to have everyone at one. Table. I guess Luke wrote the question. I you don't ever know. watched like Game of Thrones and wished like I wish I was that guy that That's just the sits table. there and people brings the me big stuff. Table. But you have to. You have to. I just like a big. I'm talking like a big formal dining room. It takes up a lot of space in your house. You have a big table in it that sits there all. But year wouldn't on. everybody rather have a dining room than not a dining room? So I'm gonna be controversial. Here. Okay. I think dining rooms are stupid. Oh. I know everyone turned the podcast off, but I think we spent. I, so when I lived in South Carolina, we had a big inform, big formal dining room. We didn't use it one time because we have a house. We can sit and eat food anywhere in our house. And instead of spending, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars on a formal dining table and a hutch and chairs, I put a foosball table in the middle of it. It got a lot more use than a dining you, room table. We had a dining room table over off the back of the in kitchen. We level. had an informal four-person table. It was not a 12, 14-person table. Sure. We have these dining room spaces in all these houses, and we put these giant tables in them that we never use, and they're very expensive, and I think we should be repurposing that space. That's my personal opinion. I've always been a big proponent that you should not have a formal dining room and an informal dining room. However, if you don't have an informal dining room, I think a formal dining room is kind of nice. So you just have the How many the houses counter. have you seen, though, that have like a formal dining room, and then no one eats there? Well, I don't live in the houses I see, so I'm not sure where they eat dinner. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was like, you can have a little what, dining room over here. What's AJ's answer to this question? Uh, I prefer informal dining rooms. Really? Well. Yeah, where well, you can actually just have one space where you eat. We also have a very large island in our house. We've got, we eat there probably 25% to 50% of the time. Yes. And that works great. Um, but if we just had a big island and then just a formal dining room, that would be fine too. It's an option. Twelve to fourteen people is a lot, though. That's a big table. That's yep. what I'm saying. It's a big table. That's I had to. Also, I had to wait if it. you don't have the big table, maybe someone else will cook Thanksgiving. You can just show up and watch yeah. football instead of being the one everyone expects to cook the meal. It's a good point. Power move. Let's get into <laughs> finally a controversial. Would you rather? Guess, yeah. Let's get into today's today's topic, and I know we are. A few weeks removed from the consumer price index numbers that came out for October, but we wanted to touch on this just because 
obviously this is affecting the 30-year fixed interest rate that we've been seeing. Um, and so we want to kind of chat about it, make sure that the agents understand what the CPI is, the consumer price index, how they can follow it, and why it matters to them. Um, so just starting off, give the basics. What is the consumer price index? Um, yeah, so the CPI, consumer price index, um, it's just the average change in prices over time of a fixed basket of goods. So they have like a specific uh, categories that they lump into this. Um, there's an overall what they call headline um, CPI number. That, that's the change in the inflationary um, kind of uh, environment that we're seeing. And then there's a core number too. And they both have different things and different goods that are included in them. Um, it's just a good track of how much prices are going up in a specific country at a specific time. So we're looking at it as a year over year number, but also in a month over month number. And yeah. the key word that you've been hearing everywhere lately is the word inflation. So in a high level, this basically tracks inflation. The cool thing about it is when you actually go into the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which I may be jumping ahead. Is that where, that's where agents can track this. That's where you can track it. You can actually see it and you can see it by month and you can also strip out different parts of it, which is kind of fun. So it helps you understand what's going on better when you look there because you can look at, okay, the total number was 7.7%, but without gas and without this, it goes down to this. That's the core number, housing or gas and food. But you can also just look at housing inflation. You can look at rent inflation. You can look at all these different components that make this number up. Um, and it's pretty neat when you can kind of see it that way. Yeah, no, that's super cool. So people can go on to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and find all of that information yep. each month. It comes out, I think, like the first week of the next month. Second week, possibly, is usually I think the 13th seems. is when it's being yep, released the in December. second week. Okay, the 13th. Um, and talk about kind of like why should agents care about going on there and actually on this website paying attention on December 13th, why it matters then? I mean, that number is directly driving impact in the bond market mostly. Um, so as we see um, higher inflation, we tend to see higher treasury yields um, because the understanding is that as the inflation goes up, the Fed continues to raise their overnight rate. Um, and that impacts that bond market pretty pretty heavily. And why does the why does it matter when the bond market's impacted? And when the bond market goes up, typically that's the leading indicator of the thirty year fixed mortgage rates. Because at the end of the day, most mortgages do become bonds down the line at some point in the form of mortgage backed securities. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really why it matters. I would argue that this and the ten year uh, Treasury bond are the two most important indirect measures in terms of our industry that you should be tracking. So we track our 30-year interest rates all the time. We track our housing stock. We track pricing. But outside of like housing-specific stuff, those two things are the most important things you should know. Because we talk about this podcast a lot, it all kind of is an interconnected web. So when A happens, then B happens, and C happens, and that will eventually trickle down to what we do. This is what's driving the behavior of the Fed. So we talk about Powell came out and said this. He's looking at the CPA. CPI as one of the most important things that's determining whether or not he needs to keep raising rates. And as he keeps raising rates, the uncertainty gets high, the bond market goes up, the interest rates go up. And so the more that you understand this metric and how it's moving, the more you can advise your clients on what the Fed is likely to do in the future and thus how our interest rates likely to react. I also think, um, and I, mean, I think to Josh's point, we've talked about this in the past, but understanding all of the different goods that go into that basket and how they are changing over time is really important because they all have different reasons for moving in whatever direction they're moving. So like gas prices, oil, um, 
has has been a hot button topic, obviously, and the war in Russia and the sanctions, like a lot of that stuff is impacting that. Whereas that's not there's not a huge domestic thing that's happening that's causing that to go up necessarily. It's more of a worldwide logistics problem. Um, and and in some you know food markets that could be the case too. But housing is a very just domestic thing, right? So there's all these different factors that go into that basket of goods. So I always advise like read the recaps of when they actually talk about what happened that month um, when Paul gets up and speaks because he speaks to specific sectors on what's going on. And sometimes that signaling is what makes the overall biggest impact. Sure. And I do, I just want to touch on too, the, the mention that Josh had of how important the CPI actually is to mm-hmm. understanding that. The crazy thing is, is since we wrote this podcast and like have been planning on it and we followed those numbers from October and how they affected the 30 year, I've been bringing this up to clients. Like, did you see the consumer price index? Do you know what that is? Nobody knows what it is. Mm-hmm. Like the majority of the population doesn't follow the actual input that creates the output of the interest rates, which I thought was super interesting. Mm-hmm. So, and we will get into the script of the week and how you can use that. Um, but to be able to bring that up, it just kind of felt like it was one of those things that I knew significantly more than than they did, which yep. felt like it was really helpful for them. Um, so I want to get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what the numbers have looked like because we talked about what, you know, in October it was, you know, lower so that interest rates were lower. Let's talk about kind of what those numbers were specifically compared to previous months. Yeah, so overall inflation in October came in at 7.7%, which seems very high. 7.7% of what? 7% over oh, the seven, prior year. I, be, I believe. So it's year over year. Was this year over year or month yep. over month? Nope, okay. October over year. October, it was 0.4% month over month. That's what it was. Um, but it seems very high, but it was extremely positive news and sent the stock market soaring. So the stock market went up almost 5% that same day. Rates dropped about 60 basis points. And the reason for that is the number was the lowest we've seen since February. So we've seen inflation continue to rise, continue to rise. This, this was like, it's... The feeling I, it, that we generally saw was that this was kind of like we're at the top of the mountain, we're coming back down the mountain a little bit. That What that's telling us is that the Fed, all the activity they've been doing, all the things they've been trying to do to stymie the market, stifle inflation, may be having some impact, which is why you saw the mortgage rates creep down because that told the investors, or at least the investors seem to be suggesting or feeling, like that means that maybe they will stop this rising of rates within the Fed activity, or maybe we're on the right page in terms of where we were thinking this was going to stop. So it was positive news from a signaling standpoint. Now that said, it's it's still high. We still saw core inflation be around 6.3%, but that was lower than 6.6 the prior month. And core inflation is? Without um, food and energy, which are the things AJ mentioned are a little bit tougher to corral. Um, but overall, still somewhat in line with 22 norms. Um, but like I said, the, the signaling from the market was really positive sure. um, when this happened. What's, what's going to be super funny is when we see which month was the highest derivative, so the biggest, uh, fastest change in inflation, probably about a bit of an April or May, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, when we hit April or May in 2023, all of a sudden the number is going to start going down super fast on a year-over-year oh, year basis. Yeah, like it'll be zero maybe. In general. Yeah, so um, that's why I think, to Josh's point, a lot of the you know the 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 year over year number is fine, but it's more, mostly looking at the month over month number because you're not getting a real. You're, eventually, you're not going to get the real number. It's going to be a bad. It's like it's like say, saying sales are down thirty percent compared to last year when last year was the most ever sales in that month ever. Yes, exactly. it's important to track yeah. both though, right? So yeah, you're, yeah. you're continuing to look at behavioral changes at every every point in the process. But yes, it was at least nice to start seeing some positive momentum. What's funny is like they're going, they're shooting for two percent. I believe is the number they mm-hmm. want. Um, they're going to get it eventually. It's just the question is, 
and this might be a longer conversation, but if you have inflation going up that fast for that long, you and then you get it back to 2%, you're still stacking two on seven. That's what I'm saying, right? So like, yeah. is, is that a, it's a good impact, right? But like, you're you're still having super high prices. You're just resetting the starting point, basically. But if you slow the rate at which inflation is happening, you allow all the other things to speed up to allow uh, people's lives to become more stable. Sure. So if uh, inflation goes up seven, but wages can get up seven, and then everything slows back to two, then people's ability to spend becomes a little bit more normalized, and the economy feels more... But- Doable. The tough part is that spending, how much people spend it affect this number, correct? Big time. And so if wages go up and inflation hasn't, and then the people have more money, you would think they'll probably spend It won't necessarily money. affect the CPI, because CPI is the price of the good in the basket. It's not how much people sure. bought of that good. But as demand increases, the, the price of things typically would increase. Correct. In theory, that's in not theory. straightforward, right? So if there's like in during COVID, there was all this demand, there was a huge supply problem. That's the biggest reason for this. But as demand for, remember, Pokemon cards or basketball cards went up, prices just shot through the roof, right? Mm-hmm. So demand does at some point create a supply shortage on its own, which will drive prices up, like oh, our it, housing market. For sure. It's called a wage price spiral, I believe, is the, is the term mm-hmm. for it. And Powell has said he does he's, not see that we're in that right he's now. He's trying to increase unemployment. Actually, no, in fact, we're probably in the opposite of that, right? Wages have not caught up to the inflation, no. so people's money is not going as far. Correct. And at some point, they're going to have to tighten as a result, or they already are tightening as a result. And so and so pulling back to, to real estate and how this affects it, I know we already kind of touched on this a little bit, but let's just say, for as an easy example for the agent listening right now, inflation comes out in October, the number is 7.7.4% above the last month, and that is lower than what was expected. Yep. How does that affect the real estate side of things. I mean, that tells the bond traders to start trading and it tells them basically what we follow is um, the overnight rate. So the Fed's um, the Fed's response to everything. And then um, how much higher are they going to go with that rate? And so there's something called the Fed futures rate, um, which is basically uh, where people bet on where the rate's going to stop at a certain time or where it's going to be. So like the March 2023 Fed futures rate has a number where the traders are trading where they think it's going to go. Um, well, when inflation comes out that it's going down, that signals to the Fed, hopefully, that what they're doing is working. And then it signals to the traders that hopefully they're going to slow down the pace of the increases. And then you see the Fed futures fund rate come down. That signals to all the bond traders as well that, oh, you know, like mortgages are probably coming down too. So you start seeing price sheets come out with lower rates. So it all, it all like you said, that's the main input. Um, there are other inputs on employment. Um, we saw wholesale prices this month be a really positive number. Um, but that main input of the CPI just leads and creates a chain reaction that gets all the way to the mortgage market. And has the fed made any announcements in regard to that and that CPI number that came out in October? Nothing official yet. The fed's really tight lipped. Um, so even if you like Google what Jerome Powell is saying, you can't find much of it right now. Which probably is good. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to necessarily tip his hand because their next announcement's not going to be for a couple months. So um, a lot can happen between now and the time that he has to make his next decision or they have to make as a group the next decision. Um, That said, the biggest thing is, like we talked about, is when the market responds this way, that means they're essentially betting on what the Fed is going to do next. And they responded in in a very big way with the S&P going up more than it has in over two years in one day. suggesting that they're feeling pretty strongly that the Fed is going to react based off of the news that they received. 
And and with that news in October, can we? I know it's obviously tough. You never really know. But could we make any sort of guesses or predictions for what the November or December CPI might look like? I uh, I mean, it's similar to my last point, right? It's the way that the betters in the stock sure. market and the bond market moved. The guess would be that you'll continue to get positive news in November, or December. That's really the only indicator that I can look at and be like, "Yep, that's a clearer picture of what might be happening where people think this is going to go." But then again, I, you know, so much of this stuff gets thrown off by macro things that happen that are a little bit outside of our control. Um, so it is hard to say that nothing's going to happen that's going to change this. Well, yeah, and December. I think the bet seems like on that Fed futures rate I was talking about. It seems like they're expecting another point of increases. Yep. So I think like a 50 basis points in December and then 25 and 25 after that mm-hmm. um, is kind of what they're thinking. That was, you know, 1.5% at uh, one point before this number came out. So um, like, like we mentioned, that sends your long-term rates, like the 30-year fixed interest rate down super fast. Because if you think you missed the mark by half a percent, then that's how much they're maybe going to pull back. So yep. Um, that's really positive news for the mortgage industry. If we continue to see good news, we could continue to see these rates go backwards. You would think at some point, though, you also don't necessarily want to see rates pull back too fast because it could then increase the spending side of things, which could make... Because part of the demand was what he was trying to cut, especially in the housing Mm -hmm. market, right? If rates all of a sudden became five and all these people started refinancing and moving and all that started to happen, theoretically, this could happen again. I mean, it's it's housing a multi-trillion dollar industry. I mean, overall it is for sure. I don't know what the number is every year on how much housing is switched hands, but it's a huge number of our mm-hmm. GDP. So you're not wrong. If you see interest rates come down on predominantly on housing and you see prices increase way too much again, um, yeah, it's, it's another game. problem. Yeah. Um, and so then just getting into the script of the week. You're at a buyer meeting. It's pretty boring this time. We're just at a buyer meeting. The client starts talking about interest rates and how they keep going up. How can you use the CPI to be the expert in the room? I mean, you could say something. I like I, Again, we start with a question, which is like, how closely do you follow that marketplace? Most people be like, oh, I read on you know MSNBC. Fox, Fox that News, CNN. Yeah, they've gone up. I'm like, yeah, the rates did go up for a, quite a period of time. That said, when the latest inflation numbers came out in November for October, um, it actually went backwards and it went, uh, you know, it, it was much lower than the anticipated number was. And that made the market very happy. And we actually saw interest rates pull back by um, about 0.6%. So the fixed rates like hovering around 6566 right now. Also, though, did you have you heard of options with getting creative with your financing? Because that's what we're talking about with everybody mm-hmm. now, right? Is like, we, we can get, you know, the demand is down, like sellers are willing to do stuff. So um if you're super payment sensitive, let's just talk about that and I'll figure out a way to make this work for you. I love that. Always trying to have some sort of solution to a problem that they have is the biggest thing there. In my I opinion. think too many, I follow communications even within our team, too many people I see, um, people say interest rates are too high now and they're like, okay, let's talk in the future. It's like, you have to be somebody with a solution, whether that solution solves their problem now or solves it in the future or doesn't solve it at all. You know, you have no control over that, but you have to have some solution to try and fix their problem. Otherwise, you're kind of worthless. Like, I'm yeah. not going to sell anything, but I'm going to I'm going to present you with something that can help you. Yeah, your goal in that scenario isn't to force them into a house, right? Like, oh, the market's bad for us. We got to find ways to get people in the houses, even in a bad interest rate environment. But you should be going above and beyond to understand their situation, ask them questions about what exactly they're looking at, 
And then if they have certain roadblocks, present, to AJ's point, alternatives that help get rid of those roadblocks. If they still don't want to buy a house or still can't buy a house, that's fine. But you have to lead people along the process to your point. Otherwise, you're not doing anything for them. Well, that's all we have for you today. We'll see you next week on the Nerdy Agent Podcast. And remember, be better. Be better.